0: How God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, part 1. We're going to look now at Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. There are two of them. And these were the earliest he ever wrote. And therefore, these are the very first part of the New Testament to be written. Maybe you didn't know that, but this is where it all started. Paul sat down to write two letters within a few months to the same place, to the same people, and thus began the New Testament. I think we often forget that the early church didn't have a New Testament. The only scriptures they had were the Old Testament, but they also had the apostles teaching and preaching, but they didn't have the New Testament and this is how it all began. These letters are probably the easiest of Paul's to understand. They deal with a few very simple, straightforward issues. There are one or two difficulties that we'll need to look at. They were written by the same person or rather persons because Paul associates with himself Silas and Timothy. They were a team of three who came to Thessalonica and left there and so he's writing on behalf of the three of them, though most of the writing is clearly his thinking, written by the same people to the same place at the same time and yet the two letters are totally different in atmosphere and in temperature, in tone. They even deal with the same subjects and yet they're dealt with in an entirely different way. The first letter is very warm and very personal, it's very concerned about them and very involved with them and then you read the second letter and it's totally different. Somehow he's very cool now towards them, very sharp with them, doesn't come over as a caring person, rather detached and distant from them and you have to ask, what has happened either at Paul's end or the other end between the two letters that has changed the relationship so much. Well, we're going to explore that and ask the question why. You've got to begin with the place. It's right up at the top of the Aegean Sea. It was a major port, though the harbour is now silted up a bit and it's not quite so near the sea as it was. That's happened to a lot of places. Ephesus, the same thing happened. But Thessalonica was a key town, crucial town, first because it was on the main Roman road that went from Rome to Asia. It was called the Ignatian Way and Thessalonica was right on that road, so by road it was a key town, but it was also the port at the head of this whole Aegean Sea, so it was the terminus of all the trade routes up and down that sea. So it was a key place. If you could establish a branch of something there, then business would spread and if you could establish a colony of the Kingdom of Heaven there, then that was going to spread far and wide. So Paul moved on from Philippi to Thessalonica, now called Salonica or Thessaloniki, though people laugh at my Greek Greek pronunciation, I'll tell you why later. But uh, there it is, it was a key town named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great and a trading post. They produced more coinage than any other town around the Aegean Sea which tells you something. A lot of trading went on, they had to have a lot of money in the banks. A very large, mixed population but especially a lot of Jewish traders. Wherever business goes, Jews go and they were there, especially because it was on the road and the sea routes archaeologists have found a lot of Thessalonica, they have found the Roman Forum, they've found a sports hippodrome, they even found a a door lintel which said on it, the synagogue of the Samaritans. So there were even Samaritans there as well as Jews, very mixed population. Now in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that it was governed by a special kind of person called a polytarch, a polytarch. That's probably made up of the two Greek words polis, city, and arch or arch, archbishop, ruler, and polytarch. Now, people used to question whether Luke was an accurate historian because the word polytarch never occurred anywhere in ancient history. And then, in quite recent years, archaeologists discovered that word forty-one times in the ruins of Thessalonica and that was the only town that called its Lord Mayor Apollotark. And when that was discovered of course, it underlined just how accurate Luke was, because he only calls rulers by that name in that city. And the more archaeology digs up, the more confident we are of the accuracy of God's Word. The trouble is, people don't wait for these proofs before they start being sceptical. Well now, let's look at the church. Paul addresses them as the church in God. That's their address. It may be the church in Thessalonica, but it's the church in God. That's their real home, that's their real address. And it was on his second journey which, uh, just to recap a bit, he was in Galatia down here with the churches that he'd founded there and he said, let's go and evangelise Bithynia. So off they went and the Holy Ghost said, no. So he said, well let's try Asia and he got there and the Holy Spirit said, no, wrong. So they went on till they got to the sea and could go no further. Now it's a very interesting example of guidance. They would not have been guided unless they'd been on the move. See, they didn't sit in Galatia and wait until the Holy Spirit said anything, they said, let's get on with the job. But the Holy Spirit kept saying, no, 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 and the Holy Spirit was driving them west. And they got to the edge of the sea and they said, well, we can go no further. And that night Paul had a dream, come over into Macedonia and help us. So the Holy Spirit can guide you better when you're on the move than when you're sitting doing nothing. You can always steer a moving car more easily than a stationary one. (laughs) very hard to turn the wheel if a car is not moving. Same with Christians, get on with something, go and do it, let the Holy Spirit guide you while you're moving, don't just stay, stay put and wait. So they crossed to Europe and they came to a port called Neapolis, but didn't stop there because the key town in the first bit of Macedonia they came to was Philippi further inland and later we'll look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. But as soon as he could, moved on, in fact, he was thrown out of Philippi, and he moved on to this key town, Thessalonica. So that's how they came there. He preached in the synagogue. there were Jews there, and Paul's policy was always to take the gospel to Jews first. He said, "I owe a debt first to my own people and then to everybody else." So he would start in the synagogues and that would invariably result in a crisis. Some Jews would believe what he said and some hated him for it. But the most fruitful group of people in each synagogue was the fringe people who were called God-fearers. They were people who hadn't become Jews, they hadn't become circumcised, but they were interested in God and they attended the synagogue because they somehow felt the God of the Jews was the real God and so they were interested observers, if you like, on the fringe of the congregation and they were known as God-fearers. It's usually translated in our Bibles as those who fear God, but it's a title, it's a description of those who believed in the God of Israel but didn't become Jews and they were the most fruitful group of people that Paul evangelised. Just as in some situations today where there's an official established church the most fruitful converts come out of the fringe of people around that church, not those committed totally to the church, but those who are interested in seeking. And these God-fearers were the major group of the first converts that Paul had in any city. But very quickly, the usual pattern was the Jewish elders of the synagogue were so furious about this, because Paul was saying to these God-fearers, you can come right in and belong to God without becoming Jews, which didn't go down very well with the Jewish leaders who were hoping they'd all be circumcised and come in on on their synagogue membership roll. So Paul invariably had to move out of the synagogue after two or three weeks usually after two or three sabbaths, he was thrown out of the synagogue. He even rather naughtily sometimes took a lecture hall next door to the synagogue and started up a church next door to where he'd got his members, which isn't the most tactful way of doing things perhaps, but nevertheless it worked. And so uh, he soon left a church behind. Now the Jews were so jealous of his converts who were mainly Gentile converts even if they'd been attending the synagogue, mainly Gentiles, but they were losing their congregation. And jealousy, I'm afraid, is pretty rife. They even tried it on Jesus once and said to Jesus, or rather to John the Baptist, tried it on him and said, you know, Jesus is baptising more people than you are, John, now. He's getting more people upriver than you're getting now. Jealousy is a horrid thing. And so they really opposed Paul and he was forced to leave. They they stirred up a civil riot and Paul's friends, his new converts, had to make a bond to keep the peace and out of consideration for them, Paul voluntarily left and moved on to Berea. And so he was only there for a very short period, but he left behind a solid church. I wish we knew more about how he did it in a few weeks and was able to leave starting from scratch. Of course, they did know the Scriptures and they had a grounding in the synagogue, many of them, but he was able to leave a healthy church. I believe one reason for that was that he got them properly birthed at the beginning and really saw that they got the whole Peter package as we call it, that they'd repented, believed, been baptised and filled with the Spirit. When you do all that at the beginning for people, they stand very much better. So Paul went on to Berea, but he left Silas and Timothy behind. They weren't so much a target of hostility. So he left them behind and went on by himself to Berea. You probably know that he got into real trouble in Berea and was forced to leave there, and now he was travelling on south by himself, got to Athens, had a bit of a tough time there. He up on Mars Hill and gave a public speech, but he was laughed at. There were a few converts, but he didn't leave a church there. And he went on to Corinth. And by this time, Paul was thoroughly demoralized. Now, I think it's important to realize Philippi, he'd been jailed, been in an earthquake. He'd been sent out of Philippi, got to Thessalonica, trouble again he had to leave there for the sake of his converts or get them into trouble, goes to Berea, trouble there. Jews are following him all the way, stirring up trouble for him. Goes to Athens, meets all the intellectuals, the philosophers, they laugh at him when he talks about the resurrection and though he leaves a few converts, he can't leave a church and he arrived at Corinth depressed. This comes out in his first letter to Corinth. He said, I came to you real weakness, trembling. He said, I really had lost my nerve. And you can understand it. I mean, we think of Paul as the most successful missionary ever, but there are not many who would like that experience. One after the other, he had a bad time. By the time he got to Corinth, he said, I really had lost confidence in myself. And uh, he came to them feeling very demoralized. But by this time, Timothy and Silas caught up with him and they brought great news. They said, you've no idea, that church in Thessalonica is just great. They said, they've really received the word, they're really going on with God, you've no need to worry about them. They said, there, there are one or two problems and they did mention one or two things, but the main thing is it lifted Paul's spirits after being chased from pillar to post all the way through Macedonia and Achaia, that's what we now know as Greece, uh, he just felt this is great news. And any of you who are in Christian service, it is really encouraging when you hear that your converts are standing fast, when you really meet someone who years ago you led to the Lord and you think, I wonder how they got on, are they still going on? And then you find they are. It really does lift your spirits. So. Paul is in Corinth, he has good news from Timothy and Silas, things are going well in Thessalonica, a few problems but nothing too serious and Paul says, I'm going to write them a letter. He said, we can't go, but he said, I'm tied up getting this church in Corinth going and that had enough problems as we'll see tomorrow morning. But nevertheless, he said, let's write a letter and that's how the New Testament began from the start. There was also other good news because they not only brought good news from Thessalonica, they brought some money from Philippi and that was terribly welcome because when Paul came to Corinth he hadn't a penny and so he went back to tent making and he went to the part of the pavement in the street where the tent makers sat on the pavement and sewed goat's hair cloth together to make tents and he met up with another tent making couple of Jews who'd just escaped from Rome where there was trouble and their names were Priscilla and Aquila. That was an encouragement to him. So the three of them sat on the pavement making tents together and then came this good news about Thessalonica going on so well and bringing a gift of money from the church at Philippi. So Paul says, great, I can drop the tent making for a bit and get on with establishing the church in Corinth, but first let's write a letter to the Thessalonians and tell them how thrilled we are with the news. Well now let's begin to look at the two letters. Look at the first letter. Chapter 1 begins and this is the warm letter, it really is. Paul's excited by what he's heard and it's a very warm letter. And the whole of chapter 1 is about the good news he's heard of them and I just want to highlight four trinities as it were, four triplets of words that uh, summarise that chapter and are very important for us. But the thing that Paul keeps emphasising is that he's thrilled to hear they really did receive the Gospel. They didn't just hear it, they received it. He keeps mentioning this word receive, you really did receive it, you took it in, you received it. And so their receptivity is the good news that he's come up, that he's heard from Timothy and Silas. The first triplet of words I want to draw your attention to is that Paul says, When we came to you, we gave you the gospel in three ways word, deed, and sign. This is the way Paul always communicated the gospel. It's not the way we communicate I'm afraid, always. You notice that it's not just in words. So many Christians think if you've given people the words of the Gospel, you've given them the Gospel. That is not true. You've given them part of the Gospel, but they have no proof that what you've told them in words is true. Or to put it simply, they need to see the Gospel as well as hear it. And of the three things that Paul mentions word, deed and sign, two are for the eye and one is for the ear. And one in the eye is worth two in the ear any day, but two in the eye and one in the ear is good communication. It is in our televisual age, but it was good communication even then. Listen, Paul didn't assume that people are waiting to hear the Gospel. He did assume that they're waiting to see it. And the deeds were the human proof that the words were true and the signs were the divine proof that the words were true. Now we, I'm afraid, concentrate almost exclusively in our evangelism on words words preached, words printed, words taped, words sung, words, words, words. Now you're not going to communicate the Gospel without words, that's true, because the words explain it. But it's the deeds, the way we live, and the signs and wonders that are the human and the divine proof that the Gospel is true. When Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, he said, all you've got to do, is very simple, go to a town, raise the dead, uh, heal AIDS or leprosy, cast out demons, heal the sick, and then tell them the kingdom's come to you. In other words, demonstrate it before you declare it. Let them see it before they hear it. What a simple approach. But we don't do it, we try and tell them it first. But Paul was wise. When he wrote to the Romans, he said, You heard my message, you saw how I lived and you witness signs and wonders all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus I have fully communicated the Gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Albania, Illyricum, which is over the other side of Greece. Now that is how Paul communicated the Gospel, word, deed and sign. I can't stay with it now, you'll find a chapter on this in my book, The Normal Christian Birth but I believe we need to recover the three dimensions of Gospel communication. You Thessalonians, you heard our words, you saw our manner of life and you saw the miracles. And he said you received what you saw and heard. See, seeing and hearing go together in Scripture. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, that which you see and hear. Now we just want people to hear the Gospel, but they need to see it and they need to see that it works and that they need to see changed lives and they need to see God doing wonders and signs and then they will believe. They will believe that the words are true. So word, deed and sign is the first little triplet I want you to notice. But he said, that's what we gave you and you received it, you took it in, you believed it. The next triple I want to mention, he then says, and the result was your faith your hope and your love. Paul was always talking about those three things, not just at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Now abides faith, hope and love. Paul was constantly talking about those three things and he said, I hear that the result of your reception of our Gospel is that your faith is growing, your hope and your love is strong. The weakest of them was their hope and he's going to say a lot more about that later in the letter but there was nothing he could criticise in their faith or their love. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's great when you've got a church that's equally strong in faith, hope and love, but faith and love is a good start. Their hope was a little shaky, so he had to strengthen that hope because the heart of hope is the second coming. That's why there's a lot of the second coming in both letters because that's the very heart of our blessed hope but faith, hope and love. The next Trinity he mentions is God, Jesus and the Spirit. And all this is somehow entwined in chapter 1. They were fully Trinitarian Christians. Now that's rather important. There was a Jesus movement a few years ago that was not Trinitarian, it was Unitarian, it was all Jesus, you see. Some people are all the Holy Spirit. But true Christianity is Trinitarian, it's to repent toward God, to believe in Jesus and to receive the Spirit. And from the very beginning, the Thessalonians were Trinitarian, not in their doctrine but in their dynamic, in their experience. They knew God, they knew Jesus and they knew the Spirit. You're getting a picture of a church that has all this after just a few weeks, crusade under Paul. It's quite a triumph, isn't it? And the final triplet I want to mention is Paul's definition of a a good Christian. He uses three verbs. He said, you turned from idols to the living God, to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Now some of you are preachers, there are three good points for your sermon next Sunday morning. A Christian is someone who's turned from Idols to the living God, but he's turned to serve the living God. He is now a servant of God, and he is someone who is waiting for his son to come from heaven. Three wonderful verbs, three dimensions of the Christian life. You've turned from, that's repentance, you are serving the living God, and you're waiting for his son from heaven. Well, I just point out those three points. Every good preacher they tell me has three points to a sermon, so there are four sermons for you and you work through them. But Paul just weaves around these threes in his chapter 1 and they're very important triplets, all four of them. Let's move into chapter 2. Here was the first problem and it concerned Paul himself and his integrity, because those Jews who had been so jealous of him in Thessalonica, had actually begun to malign him, to defame him, and behind that of course is the devil. The devil is the father of lies and I'm afraid the devil, to undo a new work, he will either defame the messenger or destroy the message, and he will usually do it in that order. The first thing he does is impute bad motives to the man who started the work and tell lies about him. And this had already begun to happen. Now this is where we have a case of reading between the lines and I carefully read through chapters 2 and 3 and asked, trying to read between the lines, what were they saying about Paul that he now defends himself against. You see this is the other side of the correspondence. And I made a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine things they accused him of being. Would you believe it? And nine times he defends his integrity against these lies. Now he's not doing it for his own pride, he's not doing it for his own reputation, he's doing it because if he allowed these enemies to destroy his character, then they would not have confidence in the Gospel he'd given them. Do you see what I mean? To destroy the messenger is ultimately to cast doubt on the message. And these are the nine accusations they brought. Number one, Paul is a bungler. He left the situation in confusion. Number two, Paul is a coward he's a criminal on the run and he ran away from you. Actually, we know that he left to protect the converts because they'd had to, um, what's the word, go bail for him. They'd had to have a bond for the peace which would mean a large sum of money that they'd have to put up and so he left them so they wouldn't have to lose that sum of money. But they accused him of being a coward. Thirdly, they accused him of being a fanatic. They said he's so single-minded that he's unbalanced. Fourthly, they accused him of being a lecher because there were many leading women in the new fellowship. Fifthly, they accused him of being a trickster, a con man. Sixthly, they accused him of being a flatterer, of playing to the gallery. Seventh, they accused him of being an opportunist, that he was only doing it for greed and for gain, for the money they would give him. Eighthly, they accused him of being an idler, that he didn't have to work, that he had an easy life. And ninthly, they accused him of being a dictator, of having a harsh, lording it over his converts and a hard attitude to them. Now that's a horrible list. Nine things they accused him of which were none of them true, but you know they stick. Things like this stay in people's minds. And it was all said behind his back after he'd left. Now that's pretty tough. And Paul wrote this letter to defend his own integrity lest they lose confidence in the Gospel he preached to them he doesn't care about his own reputation, but all this is imputing unworthy motives. And I want to say that the devil is all of those nine things and it takes one to recognise one, do you know what I mean? And in fact, behind these accusations, the devil is imputing to Paul his own satanic motives, because all those nine things you can say about the devil but you couldn't say them about Paul. So how does Paul defend himself? Well here are the nine ways. He appeals to the Thessalonians and to God as two separate witnesses and he said as God is my witness and as you are my witness, not one of those accusations is true. He says first of all, a bungler, look at the effectiveness of my ministry you are a solid church full of faith and love and you're evangelising others. Is that a bungler, his effectiveness? Secondly, he appeals to his boldness. He says, far from being a coward who runs away, he'd been in jail in Philippi and yet he comes to the very next town Thessalonica and starts preaching. Is that cowardly? If he'd been a coward, he'd have got right out of the country. Thirdly, he appeals to his guilelessness. He said, whatever I say, I mean, and whatever I mean, I say. I don't try to fool anyone. He appeals to his godliness. He says, if no one else approves me, God approves me. He appeals to his humbleness. He said, I didn't stand on my rights or my dignity. He appeals to his gentleness. He says, I was like a nurse with a baby with you, like a nurse with a baby. He appeals to his selflessness. He said, I gave you my time, I gave you my money, I gave you myself. Does that sound like a person who's in it for what he can get out of it? He appeals to his busyness. He said, far from being lazy, I laboured from dawn till dusk every day, from sunrise to sunset. And in the lack of electricity, you couldn't work in the darkness. He said, while it was light, I worked every day. He appeals to his holiness. He said, I am blameless and above reproach. Which of you convicts me of sin? Almost repeating his Lord. He appeals to his earnestness. He says, I wasn't only a mother to you, I was a father to you. I was a parent both ways. I was motherly when you needed a bit of comfort, I was fatherly when you needed a bit of discipline. And finally he appeals to his strictness. He said, I never compromise my standards with you once. I never try to trick you into anything. Well now, why does he say all that about himself? What well, he's saying it because he wants to defend the Gospel and he will not allow people to attack himself in order to destroy his message. One of the things they were saying about him was that he flattered them when he was present with them and forgot them when he was absent from them. What a dreadful thing to say. Paul says, far from forgetting you, I am constantly praying for you. I never flattered you when I was with you. And I never forget you when I'm away from you. You're on my heart. Well, it's an insight into the kind of thing that the devil loves to plant into Christian work. He loves to try and make Christians suspicious of leaders, loves to try and impute false motives, and we're not ignorant of his devices. If only the devil would say all this about himself. Paul also mentions that this suffering is something he expects and he tells the Thessalonians you should expect it too. Suffering for the Christian is a proof of election that you're chosen by God. It's a mark of honour, it's a seal of faith, it's the badge of a Christian. He said the people who really should worry are those who never suffer for the Gospel, those who never have it rough those who never make enemies, those who never have to pay the price, they are the ones who should worry. He said, suffering is normal, but he said, I'm not going to let them get away with it. He didn't mind being put in prison or flogged or stoned and left for dead. What he would fight and fight hard against was anybody imputing unworthy motives to his ministry to try and destroy that ministry. And so, it's a very strong passage. Then we come to the third section of the letter. Chapter 1 is all about their receptivity of the Gospel, chapter 2 is about his integrity as a minister th- and chapter 3, and chapters 4 and 5 are to help them to grow in maturity, and he's still concerned that there's more for them to grow into and to know. And there are two particular areas where he is concerned about them. One, their holiness, and in two particulars, women and work. Very practical. Some people think holiness is monastic, you know, divorced from real life. But the two areas he's going to talk about are women and work. Secondly, he is very concerned about their hope. Their faith is as strong as it could be. Their love is strong, but their hope, a bit shaky and he has to deal with that. Let's take first their holiness. Women, it's embarrassing to tell you this, but in Thessalonica here is the kind of thing. A man called Demosthenes said this, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of our body and we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. And that was Greek life. That was normal. Everybody did it and it was from that background that these converts came and he has two things to tell them. Number one, you stick to one woman, one wife, monogamy and to say that in the world of those days was revolutionary. I love the story of the schoolboy who said Uh, Being married to one woman for the rest of your life is monotony, but uh, it was monogamy and that was introduced by Christian Gospel preaching and they had to turn from prostitutes, mistresses and wives, and not just wife but wives because divorce was rife in the ancient world and you just turn in your wife for a later model whenever you felt like it as often as you change the car or its equivalent in those days. It's against that background that Paul in Thessalonians 4 says, stay with your wife and he says, don't treat her like a prostitute or a mistress, keep the marriage bed in honour. That's part of holiness, practical holiness. That's where the rubber hits the road as they say. The other area of holiness that he tackles is daily work. Now I've got a bee in my bonnet now. Uh, I was talking about work to 230 men a month ago in this very room. We regularly use this place for men's conferences. You were there I think, weren't you? And uh, one of the subjects we took was work, the unmentionable four-letter word. I wonder when you last heard a sermon on work in your church, or when you last sang a chorus about work in your church. Now most preachers don't preach on work because they don't go to work, if you know what I mean. Really, most of the preaching in churches is done by people who don't head off 8 or 9 on Monday morning for a job. They may be working 16 hours a day for the church but they don't have a job so they don't understand and I've looked at discipleship course after discipleship course and not one of them talks about work. They all tell you how to be a Christian in your spare time, how to pray, how to read your Bible, how to witness, how to serve the church, and it's all giving the impression that you serve the Lord out of work time and that leaves Christians very, with very itchy feet. They want to get away from work and they want to get into Christian service Listen, if you are a Christian, you are already in full-time Christian service. I wish now I had not said that and caught you out because very often in a meeting like this I say, how many of you are in full-time Christian service? And you know, about half a dozen hands go up. I say again, how many of you are in full-time Christian service? And a few few more hands go up. I go on asking it until every hand goes up because it doesn't matter whether you're a taxi driver or a missionary or what have you, work and the way you do it is your holiness. It's your love for the Lord, it's your service to your neighbour. You do it to glorify him. Otherwise you're going to waste the majority of your waking life. Sixty percent of your waking life is going to be lost to the Lord until you see that work is holiness and the way you do it. And so Paul has to tell these people to earn their own living and to make it their ambition to be dependent on nobody. Christians should not live on the charity of other Christians an able-bodied Christian should be earning their own living and supporting their family and earning enough to give away to those in need. Now Paul is not talking about those who cannot work, but about those who will not. There's a big difference. And I'll say more about that when we look at the second letter. But in trying to help them to see what a holy life is, he has to talk about women and about work and about very practical things. Well, I think we'll stop there because uh, hope is such a big subject and it'll link up with the second letter, which is shorter too. So we'll stop this study there and pick it up next time. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at DavidPorson.org.